back to On The Cast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I'm particularly delighted to welcome all the new listeners who have joined us in recent weeks. Now, as we record this, the meat producer, JBS, has just been targeted by a ransomware attack that forced the company to shut down operations in the US, Canada, and Australia. Now, the FBI has attributed the attack to Revo, a Russian hacking group. And the attack comes just weeks after another ransomware attack brought down Colonial Pipeline. Now, this attack, too, was committed by a Russian hacker group. And what happened after that is equally interesting, which is that U.S. motorists unsurprisingly panicked at the news of Colonial Pipeline being shut down. So they all drove, or many of them drove, to, to their local gas station and filled up with any, filled up any container they, they could find. And this collective panic, of course, further worsened the shortage of, of gasoline. And these attacks demonstrate a painful reality. America isn't safe from aggression in the gray zone between war and peace. Now, the Biden administration is grappling with how to respond. It has said it may engage in offensive cyber operations against hackers themselves, as opposed to offensive cyber against, in this case, Russia as a country. Another matter, though, is how to involve all parts of society in trying to limit the effects of cyber aggression when there are successful cyber attacks, as there will be in the future as well. Now, fortunately, a small group of pioneering members of Congress have long thought about what to do and brought legislation underway. One of them is Congressman Jim Langevin from Rhode Island. He's a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee, where he's the chairman of the Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Systems Subcommittee, and also serves on the subcommittees on sea power and projection forces and strategic forces. In addition, he's a senior member of the Committee on Homeland Security, where he serves on the subcommittees on intelligence and counterterrorism and cybersecurity, infrastructure protection and innovation. Mr. Langevin also co-founded the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus to increase awareness around the issue. And in addition to that, he serves as a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. He has authored or co-authored dozens of pieces of cybersecurity legislation, including most recently the National Cyber Director Act. And further highlights from Congressman Langevin's really impressive body of work in the area of cybersecurity are, for example, the Cyber Diplomacy Act, which has passed the House. It looks to establish a Bureau of International Cyberspace Policy at the State Department. Then there is the CISA Cyber Exercise Act, which looks to establish a national cyber exercise program at the Department of Homeland Security. And the Pipeline Security Act, which would codify the Transportation Security Administration's responsibility relating to securing pipelines against cybersecurity threats, as well as acts of terrorism. So a lot of fantastic initiatives. And better yet, Congressman Langevin is here to discuss what should be done in addition to the legislation that he has sponsored or co-sponsored. Congressman, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you, Elizabeth. Something that I think is in everybody's, on everybody's mind and has been on everybody's mind for, for the past couple of weeks is at least is the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, which caused severe gasoline shortages. And those shortages were not just the result of, of the attack itself, but primarily because people panicked because they thought that it would be shortages. They panicked and stockpiled. And as a result, there were massive shortages on the East Coast. And it won't be the last such incident. And so what I would like to hear from you are your thoughts on whether this was a wake-up call for the U.S. public 
Or do we need an even more severe attack in order for people to, to realize that modern society, a modern society such as, as the US is vulnerable to aggression short of war? Or on the other hand, does the public just have to accept that great convenience such as, as what we have today simply brings the risk of, of occasional disruption? Unfortunately, each one of these cyber attacks, these cyber incidents, in my view, are wake-up calls. And it's an opportunity and a, you know, and a real call and a demand that more need to be done in order to better protect our, our cyber systems. So what we saw with Colonial certainly was, was very concerning. Uh, it makes me angry that it happened, of course, in the first place, but it, it could have been far worse. As I've, I've said in other interviews I've given, that if you think for a second, what if this had been a natural gas pipeline instead of a gasoline pipeline was supplying the, say, the entire Northeast with natural gas during the dead of winter, and that pipeline was shut down, one can easily see that it could do not only damage to our economy, but could potentially lead to, to loss of life. And so we truly have to redouble our efforts to better protect our critical infrastructure. We're not at all where we need to be right now, and we have to work harder. Certainly, the issue of panic buying is a problem, and we, you know, the the NO government tried to smooth things over and sort of calm fears. And I say smooth things over by issuing regulations or executive orders that help to deal with the ripple effects of the of the pipeline shutdown, and so it allowed for greater supplies of, say, deliveries of fuel by truck to be possible or train or barge. They were using all means necessary. But it's, you know, it's hard to address panic buying. You, you can understand someone being told that you know, there might be shortages and they're going to run out and make sure that you know, their needs are met, taken care of. That's maybe a challenge in dealing with human nature. But good communication and having steps in place, building resilience, both to protect our systems, but then cyber, good cyber planning can plan for the aftermath or the effects if the bad thing does happen. You know, what are the contingency plans that we can put in place so we flick a switch and hopefully it's as seamless as possible to, to roll out the contingency plan. Those are the things that we need to do with, along with building in resilience to our critical infrastructure. So in other words, an effort both by the government and, and by the companies involved by the, by the private sector and, and by the population. And as you say, human nature is, is difficult to, to predict and steer. And, and I think that is the biggest challenge of the, of the three, getting that change of mindset and behavior among the wider population. Something is connected to that. This is what exactly can we do to, to educate the public in some countries, in fact, in some US cities, including San Francisco, there are constant public awareness campaigns about what to do in a crisis. And, and of course, the point is that that's to prevent people from inadvertently making the crisis much worse. What would you say is the best way of educating the public? Can the public be educated in any comprehensive way, or should we just hope that they learn from, from each incident and do better the next time? Yeah, well, you know, you're, you're right to point out again that the colonial pipeline disruption led to, you know, people believing that there'd be gasoline shortages and therefore filled their gas, right? And, and that contributed to the, the, the shortages. You know, you can understand on a, on a communal level that this behavior was counterproductive and became a self-fulfilling fear. On the other hand, you can't blame any individual for doing what they perceived to be in their best interest. So to some extent, you can try to stop panic buying by asking for calm, but in practice, that doesn't really go very far. So in this case, the leadership requires trust and credibility. 
if you tell someone not to go out and buy gas because it will lead to panic and their and then you know their neighbor does it anyway, well the the diligent citizen will be left with an empty tank. So to some extent, it's not really appropriate for leaders to try to exercise persuasion when that won't really solve the problem. Sometimes in you know fraught situations like shortage, the incentives for individual behavior run against the you know the collective good. And that's why it you know wartime you have rationing. I'm not to say that we should ration gas after the colonial pipeline, but in an emergency, emergency action should never be taken off the table. I think that gets to the bottom of the issue that the individual objective is counter to the collective objective. A slightly related area is the relationship between the US government and the tech community. And, and the US government has tried for a number of years to get the tech community enthusiastic or, or at least interested in innovating on behalf of the US government. As we know, without tech innovation in national security, the US and its allies can't beat China. Now, how would you evaluate the effects of those efforts so far? Yeah, so you know, we've made progress in connecting Silicon Valley to the government, but clearly more work remains. Our ability to innovate and introduce new technologies and new products to the market, it's one of our strengths of our economy, no doubt. And you know, when you talk about connecting government with you know, the hub of innovation in Silicon Valley, you know, we've had some success. We look at the Air Force Cyber program. It changed its model to give startups funding and assistance with finding DoD clients. So basically, we need to prioritize software development and, and software requirements by making them, I believe, prime contractors. That's something we don't do today. You know, when we are creating a new weapon system, it's the, the hardware contractors that are the, the prime contractors and software is kind of the afterthought. We need to, yeah. to flip that equation around. Software needs to be driving the innovation in a lot of ways. So need to also fund basic and applied research, which the, unfortunately the president's budget has cut this year. You know, when I look at this, the, the U.S. government share in global R&D has declined in the past 50 years. China and the U.S. private sector are spending more. So I'm, I'm glad that the private sector is, is spending robustly on R&D, but the government needs to be at the you know, table really driving this as well. And there's a lot that you know, we don't know about things like quantum computing and physics. And we're still determining how best to apply AI to the, the battlefield or, or use spectrum more efficiently. So this really needs to you know, be driven, I think, more by the government. We can't fall behind China in either relative dollars or actual dollars that we spend on our R&D or our enemies and adversaries are going to outcompete us and outinnovate us. We can't allow that to happen. And the interesting aspect of, of one of the many interesting aspects here is, is that there are some countries the U.S. could learn from. And, and the benchmark is, of course, Israel, where the armed forces have a really a phenomenally successful way of, of nurturing tech talent, where they identify talent who then serve in, in Unit 8200 and other R&D units. And then after they leave conscription, they, they go out and, and fund companies privately that then benefit Israel, the Israeli economy, and Israeli security. And the question is, short of, of something as, as draconian as, as mandatory conscription, can the U.S. learn anything from, from Israel from, from this really phenomenally successful approach? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. Leader is, Israel is a leader in the field of, of R&D and harnessing the power of their education system to instill both knowledge and the issue of innovation at the very youngest of ages. I'm 
impressed with. And I've traveled to Israel specifically to look at this, but you know, looking looking at baking cybersecurity in just by way of example, the cyber you know here is an afterthought, right? In our education system, where in Israel it's baked in, it's a it's a forethought. Kids there are, are, are taught coding from the the very youngest ages, and again, you know, the sciences are baked in at a at a very young young age. So I want to acknowledge Israel's emphasis on again cyber and ability to train and develop cyber professionals. You know, I want the authorities that Congress is given to be utilized and look by way of example at our military, the Army's direct commission authority for cyber professionals has only hired 10 people in two years, despite 800 applicants. You know, that's somewhere else that we can bring in, we can bring in talent. So again, not conscription, but it's a, it's a way for people with cyber skills to bring this uh, skills to be used by government. You know, also I've been championing the AI workforce issue. And uh, last year we in- included provisions to address the digital talent problem basically creating things like unclassified working spaces for, for new hires, online courses and training for existing hires so that we grow our, our, our AI talent. But you know, we also need to grow and diversify the digital workforce with STEAM education throughout K through 12. Also looking to underserved communities in the past, so historically black colleges, universities and minority institution partnerships, upskilling the existing DOD workforce and and really attracting future Nobel laureates from around the world and with what I call the national security innovation visas. And that would allow the Secretary of Defense, for example, to allow someone who has studied here to stay here and put them on a path to citizenship if it's a critical national security technology or you know, R&D area that, that they, have been, they have been working. You know, why do we want to just educate people here and then send them home when they could be the job creators or the problem solvers or, or the Nobel laureates that are going to help the United States maintain its competitive edge. Yes. Why ever? National security innovation visas, that, that is an idea that I think a number of NATO allies, in fact, every NATO ally should consider. One other aspect that is probably not just in, in the U.S., but especially in the U.S., is is the discord between different groups of society. And, and ordinarily, that, that might be a problem that, that could be resolved or a challenge that could be resolved or addressed over a long period of time. But, but what's happening with the forms of aggression that China and, and Russia in particular are using is that they exploit those divisions. And so it seems to me that, that the US at the moment practically invites hostile states to, to interfere. Now, do you agree? And, and what can be done other than telling people to get along? Yeah, I can't agree more with the concern that you have raised. We value freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and discourse. You know, democracy can be certainly messy and and contentious at times, but we've seen now misinformation, disinformation, and even those those divisions weaponize now uh, to divide us further apart. And that really, really concerns me. Absolutely, hostile states can and they are. Exploiting our differences through our, you know, information environment. You know, just case in point, Russia's interference in our 2016 elections and, you know, that tragic misinformation campaigns also that, that led up to the January 6th insurrection at the, at the Capitol, just by way of example. So clearly information is being used against us and weaponized in a way that, you know, we certainly in, in the 2016 elections, we were not prepared for and we were caught off guard where there's a lack of imagination. Or, or what it was, it simply it was something that was a wake up call, and we better do better to 
better educate our, our, our citizenry, building civics education and things of, of that nature. Digital literacy, that's another thing that's important. The United States, you know, has a habit, unfortunately, of learning and then forgetting and then relearning, you know, very important lessons. So, you know, this is the importance, of course, of soft power. We have to lead by our example and help people understand what is really happening. So certainly the United States has historically stepped up to the responsibility of providing international stability backed by military power. Our military power has and continues to contribute to peace and stability in Europe. But, you know, Europe also can remind the United States that in international affairs, persuasion is at least as important as, as coercion. So, you know, because Europe inherently intertwines many nations, languages, cultures, and economic sectors under the, the common umbrella, you know, we in America can look across the Atlantic and for models of how to sustain and employ soft power. Yes, and there is such enormous value in having allies. And, and a number of, of the initiatives or proposals that you have mentioned are, are ones that can easily be adapted and adopted by a number of U.S. allies. And can I ask, you've spent a lot of time talking to, to various U.S. allies, uh, not just recently, but over the years. Are there any initiatives underway in the wider area of, of homeland security and, and keeping the homeland safe that, that you've seen in other countries that you think the U.S. could learn from? So the United States, again, can work with our, our European partners and you know, we have shared values, common values. And I think it's important that we learn from each other and using soft power, recognizing different interests to work to, to find common interests. Uh, I think the issue of negotiation and diplomacy cultural exchanges, economic incentives, collective action, norms, and expectations. These methods all apply, especially in the area of gray zone conflict areas like cybersecurity, where, where norms of behavior and collective action are the most direct instruments of influence on recalcitrant nations. I have to say, you know, Russia specifically has demonstrated its willingness to, to undermine our collective systems through things like state, state-sponsored cyber attacks, safe harbor for criminal syndicates that conduct ransomware attacks and against Western companies and governments and influence operations that exploit our, our open media and free speech laws. So these, these are aggressive and unwelcome behaviors really are directed against the United States and European nations. So we've got a common enemy and threat here. And you know because of proximity, European countries are also faced with balancing economic ties while maintaining a defensive posture against Russia. So I understand that, you know, given the proximity, that's particularly challenging. I think that the U.S., quite frankly, will benefit from the, the Biden administration's strong interest and competency in rebuilding our transatlantic alliances, which has been damaged by the previous administration. I think we can learn from our European partners and how we can best exercise our, our soft power collaboration to defend Western democracies and values together. Yes, America's allies may not be perfect, but they are they are better than no allies, which is what America's adversaries have. They they have a few frenemies, but nothing like what the US has. And with that, I'd like to thank Congressman Benjamin very much for, for joining us. And I, I know your national security innovation visas will get a lot of attention because it's 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 a fantastic idea. I'm surprised it doesn't already exist, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Many thanks, as always, to our producers, Olivia Leslie, Annie Terrell and Leila Hande. 
We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cast. <laughs>